Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, would you teach us from your word today? God, my, my heart for us today is that those of us who are coming in weighed down by heavy things would feel that weight released, Lord. For those who are coming into this place weighed down by sin and guilt and shame, that you would set them free. For those who may be coming in puffed up with pride in their confidence in the flesh, Lord, that you would remind them of the necessity of grace. God, would you teach us from your word today? And would you get all glory and honor and praise? Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, come and teach your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, throughout the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has been warning the church of the presence of dangerous leaders. He tells them about those who are preaching from false motives, those who are proclaiming Christ from rivalry, from selfish ambition, pursuing vain glory. And yet, despite their misplaced motives... Paul says that they are preaching Christ nonetheless, and so for that, he rejoices. But at this point in the text, he turns his attention to false teachers. These are not those who are just preaching from false motives. These are not those who just have a difference of opinion regarding Jesus or regarding some passage in the Bible. False teachers are those whose doctrine is skewed. The gospel that they preach is no gospel at all. It's powerless to save, and so their ministry doesn't produce holiness. Their ministry doesn't reconcile sinners 
to God. It actually puts barriers in the way of people who want to follow Jesus. Paul does not rejoice in their ministry. Instead, he warns them of their ministry. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Strong words. Many have read passages like this and this passage and felt that these are not only strong words, they are offensive words. But sometimes the Bible uses strong language. Sometimes the Bible uses offensive language to describe things that are offensive. Sometimes the Bible uses words that offend us. Because sin and evil has ceased to offend us. And so the text uses words to wake us up to the reality of what is taking place around us. See, false teaching lies about Jesus. They pollute the gospel. They twist it and distort it so that it is no longer good news. My Nona is famous for her strawberry cheesecake, okay? I try to live on a relatively low-carb diet regularly. I've gone through seasons of being sugar-free. I don't crave sweets. Sweets don't tempt me. But I will ditch keto for a strawberry cheesecake from my Nona 100% of the time. But one year, she got busy other stuff in the house, and she forgot to add sugar. If you forget to add sugar to cheesecake, all it is is cream cheese and sour cream. Okay, a couple eggs. Like, it's gross, but you add sugar, and it's delicious. This year, she forgot to add the sugar, and nobody would eat it. Okay? That's not what false teaching does. False gospels are not just the gospel without a little bit of sweetness. Okay, false teaching, false gospels are taking something that is decadent, something that is beautiful, like a gourmet meal, and not just removing sweetness, but adding poison. Okay, a false gospel, there's no good news in it. There's no power for salvation. There's no reconciliation to God. It's lifeless. It's no longer just not as good. It's lethal. And so Paul is calling out lies of these teachers because they actually prevent people from experiencing the power and the goodness of the grace of God. And so he says, look out for the dogs. Now, My son recently started playing uh, flag football in Santa Barbara. So on Thursdays, I take him to Shoreline Park and I sit on a park bench and I watch him play football and I watch all of the people who walk their dogs uh, around the, the path because I love dogs. Like I've never in my life, except for the one time that dog bit me, I've never in my life been like, watch out for the dog. It's like, oh, look at the dog. Like I I love dogs. They make me smile. It's hard not to smile when I look at dogs. That's not what Paul's talking about. Um, In the ancient Jewish context, dogs were not cuddly, lovable house pets. Okay, they were dirty. 
unclean scavengers who lived on the streets and ate garbage and, and ate uh, uh, decaying carcasses, including unburied humans. They were even known to eat their own vomit and feces. So when Paul says, look out for the dogs, he's talking to a culture whose religious uh, uh, life centered around cleanliness, being clean in the eyes of God so that they could approach the presence of God. And so when Paul says, look out for the dogs, he's saying, look out for those that would defile you and make you unfit for God's presence. Look out for those whose, whose doctrine and teaching and lives and demands would make you unclean, unfit for God. See, the teaching of these people doesn't connect people to God. It defiles them and it creates barriers between them and God. And so as such, the work that they do, Paul says, is evil. Though they may call it ministry, the work that they do, though they may call themselves Christians and they may use the name Jesus, they may have a a, a resume just filled with credentials. Yet Paul says they do not do good. They are evildoers. Watch out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And the evil that they're doing is made evident by the third exhortation. He says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, this word mutilate is is literally in the original language translated to cut off. Look out for those who cut off the flesh. It's katatome. And it's a play on the Greek word for circumcision, which is peritome. Peritome means to cut around. Katatome means to cut off. And so Paul is colorfully describing a group of false teachers who are requiring non-Jewish people to be circumcised in order to be saved, which is kind of a strange requirement if you're not familiar with the Old Testament context of circumcision. Hi, I'd like to follow Jesus, please. Just just need a small operation. (laughs) On second thought, I'll observe Jesus from afar. But if you were here during our series through the life of Abraham, then you remember that circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and his family. It was a mark in their flesh that reminded them of their unique relationship to God and the unique responsibility that they had to be a blessing to every family of the earth. It was this reminder. And so for to be uncircumcised in the Old Testament context or to be someone from an uncircumcised people was to essentially be cut off from God. They had no access to God. You could not approach God's presence in the temple. But God also told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that someday he would circumcise the hearts of his people. That it wasn't just an outward sign, but what needed to happen is that the Holy Spirit needed to transform their hearts in order to obey God. No amount of legal obedience or religious observance apart from the Spirit-empowered transformation of our hearts will ever be enough to bring about the life 
the new creation that God desires for his people. And so think back to John chapter 3, when Jesus is is sitting down with, with the Pharisee, the teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus, at night, a man who's so highly decorated in in confidence in the flesh, decorated in all of the religious status. And Jesus said, unless you are born again, unless you are born of water, speaking of the natural birth, and, and spirit, speaking of the spiritual birth, unless you are born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, in all of his religious ritual and all of his obedience and all of his good works, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get him into the kingdom. And so by requiring this religious ritual as a prerequisite for salvation, what the false teachers are doing is actually creating an obstacle between you and following Jesus that Jesus himself died to remove. Okay, and that obstacle is not just one piece of performance. It's not just one medical procedure. The obstacle that false teachers place in the way of those following Jesus is the lie that your religious performance is necessary for salvation. The lie that your salvation is determined by what you do will absolutely crush your joy, will absolutely frustrate your faith, and in some cases actually prevent you from experiencing the fullness of grace. And so listen, we need to grasp this or else Jesus will always feel at arm's length to us. Following Jesus will always feel like a game of hide and seek. Unless we get this. That your religious performance does not achieve salvation. Your religious performance does not achieve salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Paul says, the the grace, the faith that you've received, it's not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nobody can ever say, look at me. Look at what I have done. Look at what I do. This is why I'm accepted by God. It's because I read my Bible every day. It's because I pray 30 minutes a day. It's because I go to church every Sunday or I serve in kids ministry on Sunday. This is why I am saved. No one can ever say, look at me, only look at Jesus. Our lives are only a signpost, not pointing people to the kind of life that they should also live but a signpost to Jesus because we can never live the life that we're supposed to live. At the heart of the gospel is the fact that we can never earn God's favor. But God has given us favor as a free gift in Jesus. And the more we try to present ourselves as worthy by what we do, the more and more we miss out on what God did to make us worthy. 
The more we're focused on what we do, the less we're focused on what God has done. And this is just as relevant today as it was in Paul's day. Okay, in, in, the, in the early church, what people wanted to do was, was add to the gospel. They wanted to say, oh, salvation is a result of Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the law. Jesus and living like a Jew. Or Jesus and this secret knowledge that Jesus is just a stepping stone to, that when you really transcend the, the, the world, this, this Gnosticism, these were the things that were infiltrating the church in the, in, in the early centuries. And, and, and the gospel says, no, it's, it's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. And today it might not be imposing circumcision, but today it's, it's Jesus and baptism making baptism a a necessity for salvation or a particular mode of baptism or baptism in a particular denomination or a particular church. Or maybe it's, it's Jesus and membership to this particular denomination or particular church or Jesus and, you know, agreeing to this historical confession or, or this, this particular creed. That salvation is because of Jesus and this thing that you do. Jesus and this intellectual knowledge that you ascend to. And if the gospel you believe is a Jesus and anything gospel, it's not the gospel. That's not good news. Because at the heart of it, it forces you to believe that Jesus is not enough. That Jesus is not sufficient. And at that point, the gospel becomes no longer good news. It's just good advice. Jesus didn't come to give us advice. He came to give us life. And it isn't just these teachings outside that we hear about. Many of us deep down are tempted to believe a Jesus and false gospel without even knowing it. Many of us learned from a young age that we could um, please our parents through our performance, through our obedience, through our academic excellence, through performance on uh, the athletic field, whatever it is. We, we learned that in order to, to get to my parents' heart, what I need to do is these things. I need to say the words. I need to do the things. I need to, you know, as my parents used to say, keep my nose clean, which I don't know what that means, but it meant behaving in some way. And we learned early on that this is how we can earn our parents' favor. And when we didn't perform well, when we were not obedient, or when we didn't have a good game, or when we brought home that D on the report card, and we saw the, 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 the dissatisfaction on our parents' faces, it reinforced that, that in order to please my parents, I need to do the things. And for many of us, this translates to our relationship with God. And so we believe when we're doing the things, when we're doing the prayers, when we're doing the, the reading, when we're doing the worship, when we're doing anything, when we're doing the right things, we, we're tempted to believe that God is smiling down on us because we are doing the right things. But the flip side of that is when we're not doing those things, we're tempted to believe that we're disappointments. 
that God, that God does not smile upon us, that he's frustrated with us, that he's going to, you know, put us away from himself. And this is an indication that we believe the same lie beneath the surface, telling ourselves that it is our religious performance that God wants from us. And we will never say that we believe that our religious performance achieves salvation. And yet at the same time, we are living like our religious performance adds to it or accounts for something. But the gospel truth is this, that in Christ, God is always pleased with you. This is one of the hardest things for me to believe. I, I see it in scripture. I believe that it's true. But one of the most difficult things for me is when I know I'm a failure, believing in my heart that in Christ, God is well pleased in me. I'm still tempted to believe that deep down when I fail, I'm a failure. And the good news of Jesus is that when you fail, you are forgiven. That Christ died for past sin, present sin, future sin. That tomorrow when you blow it, Christ doesn't need to be crucified again for you to be forgiven. He's already done it. The good news of Jesus is that your religious performance does not achieve salvation, but Jesus achieves salvation. In fact, our religious performance doesn't add anything. Paul says it's garbage. He doesn't say that, you know, I have more reason for confidence in the flesh and you know, it's kind of like extra credit points. So you should strive for it too. It's not what he says. He says, I've got reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, born a member of God's people, and as early as I could be obedient, eight days old, which is when they were commanded to be circumcised, I was obedient from day one, day eight, I was obedient, member of God's people. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was a prestigious tribe in Israel. Benjamin was the youngest son of Israel. And if you remember the story, after uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, Benjamin becomes the favorite. Benjamin is the youngest son between Israel and his favorite wife, Rachel. And he loves him. And Benjamin was the tribe that produced the first king of Israel, King Saul. And when the, the kingdom was torn into two and the northern tribes became the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, there were two tribes that remained the southern kingdom of Judah in around Jerusalem under the, the dynasty of David. It was Judah and Benjamin. And so Paul is like, I'm from the right people. I'm from the right group within the people. And even within that group, when the rest of the, the, the people of Israel, when the Jews were scattered among the area and Greek uh, influence came in and, and the, the Jewish people were living among these pagan cultures, Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means not just I'm Jewish ethnically, but culturally. 
Okay, so an illustration to use this example, there are people who live around us who devote their lives to preserving the Chumash language and the Chumash culture. Okay, they, they, they speak it to one another. Maybe you, are, uh, you, have, you have parents or, or ancestors of, of, of immigrants and you, you speak your native language in the home. See, at this day and age, the Jews were spread among a pagan culture and many of them were speaking Greek in the homes. But Paul says, no, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I keep the traditions of my ancestors and the language front and center in my life. It was a point of pride and a distinction among God's people. He says, as to the law, the law of God, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the ones who kept meticulous obedience to the law. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This one always trips us up. Like, why is Paul boasting about murdering believers as a sign of his righteousness? Well, there's a story in the book of Numbers about a man named Phineas. And the people of Israel were intermarrying with the, 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 the women from other uh, cultures and other religions, and they were worshiping their gods. And so God sends a plague, and he's like, you guys got to stop doing this. But there was one man who brought his, his wife, his foreign wife, into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. And there's some that believe they were even kind of like getting familiar with one another in the tabernacle. And there was a man named Phineas who got a spear and in his zeal for God's house, ran them through with the spear, killing both of them and staying the plague in Israel. And he's commended for his zeal that he protected the reputation and the sanctity of God's presence. And so Paul said, when I was a Pharisee and I believed that the Christian church was offending the sanctity of God and, and defiling his presence, I was going so far as to persecute them. That's how far I will go, the lengths to which I will go for God. And he says, even then, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There is nothing that you can point to in my life, he says, that will show any sign of half-heartedness. Any sign that I am not fully devoted to God. In terms of religious performance, there was no one like Paul. Paul says in the book of Galatians that he was advancing in Judaism beyond anyone else of his generation. He was the poster child. He was the one that, oh, you want to know about what our faith is supposed to look like? Look at Paul. He was the guy. And he says all of it. Every ounce of it, every bit of religious performance, everything that I did to make myself worthy of God, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Now we can understand this in terms of comparison, right? In terms of comparison, everything I've done is less than everything that Jesus has done for me, right? We can understand that in terms of comparison, but Paul doesn't just say it's less than. He says it's trash. This word rubbish is borderline a curse word in the original context. Remember, we talked about strong language. Okay, Paul says it's, it's sewage, it's, it's worthless. It's not just trash, it's filth. Think about what you do when you accidentally touch something gross. Right? You ever like 
realize like, oh my gosh, what is that? And you like, get it, get it off of me. You, you, you get it off of you as, as quickly as you can. That's how Paul talks about our religious performance. He, he wants to get it off of him. He doesn't want anything to do with it. In my house, my kids think that it is a lot of fun to, to get me to unintentionally smell their smelly socks. Sometimes it's really bad. And it's, yeah, get, get it away. Well, that's what Isaiah 64, 6 says our righteous deeds are like. He says, we've all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Get it off. Get it away. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to look at it. Burn it. Your religious performance cannot achieve salvation. But the enemy wants you to believe that it does. Okay, the devil wants you to believe that it does so that you can stay buried in your shame for failures. He also wants you puffed up with pride for your successes. Either way, what the enemy wants is for us to look at ourselves and what we do rather than to look at Jesus and what he has done. And so Paul says that all of the religious performance in his life is nothing. It accounts for nothing. It adds nothing. And he gladly trades it away in order to gain Jesus. Now listen. The desire that we have to trust and obey God is a good desire. It's a good thing. When you realize what Jesus has done for you, when you know the grace of God, when you know that you can't earn it, but he has given it to you by grace, we follow him joyfully. We obey him gladly. We want to see the character of Jesus presented in our own lives. But what God requires for salvation, he has already provided for us in Christ. It's through faith in Jesus that your sin is removed from you. And it's through faith in Jesus that his righteousness is given to you, not because what you have done, but despite what you have done. See, if your good performance does not achieve salvation, then your poor performance can't diminish your salvation either. You don't get less salvation. You don't get more salvation. The Psalms say that in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy. That word fullness is perfect. If you can add to or remove joy, it's not perfect joy. The salvation that Jesus gives us is complete. It's full. It's perfect. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. God can't love you or like you more. He can't love you or like you less. In Christ, he is well pleased in you. And the more we cling to our own religious performance, the more we try to make that our thing, the less we're actually able to rest in the free gift of God's grace in Jesus. And so if you're struggling, to enjoy your relationship with Jesus, perhaps it's because you're still trying to deserve your relationship with Jesus. And you don't. 
Nobody does. Nobody ever has. We don't deserve it. But he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants relationship with us. I want to close with a story that I heard uh, the Scottish preacher Alistair Begg uh, talk about recently. He said that if the reason that we give for our relationship with Jesus, if the reason that we give for our salvation is in the first person at all, we're wrong. If the reason that we give for our salvation has anything to do with because I did this, because I did that, because I believed, because I had faith, because I'm a Christian, because I anything, he says, we get it horribly wrong. The only answer that we can ever give is because he died for me, because what he has done, because of his righteousness that he has given me, because he has forgiven me. And he uses this illustration of the thief on the cross. If you remember the story, Jesus is crucified with a thief on his right hand and on his left. And both of them are reviling him. They're they're hurling curses at him. They're joining in with all of the people as they just just, uh, uh, attack Christ. You saved others, save yourself. But at some point, one of the thieves on the cross, turns to Jesus. He comes to his senses. He recognizes who Jesus is and what he's doing. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Alistair Begg talks about what it would be like for that man to approach the gates of the kingdom of God, having never been baptized, having having never read the New Testament, Never, never, not even been a member of a church, never attended a church. Unable to articulate the doctrine of salvation by grace. Unable to articulate the doctrine of scripture or the Trinity. Standing at the gates of heaven. And he talks about, you know, this angel coming to him and says, what are you doing here? And the man's like, I don't know. He's like, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. He says, on what basis? Opening up the the, the book of his life and seeing all of his crimes, all of his evil, all of his sin, all of his filth. What would you do standing at the gates of the kingdom of God and all of that being open to you, knowing and, and, and exposing everything, every reason why you don't deserve to be there. And the angel asks the man, on what basis are you here? And his answer And our answer is the same. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. The only reason that you have any right to stand before God in the kingdom of God is because the man on the middle cross, the king of the kingdom invited you. And we receive the invitation through faith in who he is and what he has done. And for that reason, and that reason only, can we be counted righteous. You accomplish nothing. He has accomplished everything. And so let us now look away from the things that we do for God and look to him, putting aside our performance and just going to him together in gratitude.
Father, would you work this truth into our hearts? That it is because of you and you alone. It is because of the work on the cross and the work of Jesus on the cross alone that we can ever stand before you righteous. For those of us who are weighed down with sin, weighed down by the reality of this last week or weighed down by the, 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 the things that continue to entangle us. Jesus, with that truth, by the power of your Holy Spirit, right now, just break chains and set people free. Trusting that it's true. God, for those of us who feel like we've come into this place believing that we're something special because of our works, God, would you redirect us that we would know that we are special in your eyes because of what Jesus has done for us. Holy Spirit, would you fill our hearts with joy? Would you fill our lungs with praise? Would you fill our minds with the glory of Jesus that, that we, would, we would see you and recognize just how beautiful you are in this place? Turn us away from our performance, whether good or bad. And may we find ourselves at the foot of the cross in this place, bringing all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our, our good works and laying them at your feet. That by any means, we might gain Christ and experience resurrection power in our life and in the next. Come Holy Spirit, do this work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.